If you're a maker, blogger, or a creative business owner, Craftcation Conference is the perfect place for you to get all the tools and resources you need to start the business of your dreams, take your existing business to the next level, make lifelong friends, and build your community, and discover or rediscover your inner artist and crafter. Come to the Craftcation Business and Makers Conference on April 27th through 30th, 2017 in Ventura, California. Craftcation sells out every year, so don't miss this chance. Go to dearhandmadelife.com and use the code WALSHYNAPS to get $20 off and register for four days. You'll never forget. Thank you so much, Craftcation. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 89 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about quilting as an industry with my guest, Thomas Knauer. Thomas describes himself as both an artist and a geek. He has an art degree from Kenyon College and two MFAs, one from Cranbrook Academy of Art and another from Ohio University. He taught design at Drake University before moving to upstate New York to start a family. Shortly thereafter, he fell ill with a rare form of muscular dystrophy. He began sewing for his young daughter and instantly fell in love with the practice and launched a career in quilting. Thomas has designed textiles for Andover and Coca. He wrote a feature column for Quilter's newsletter for three years. He's the author of two quilting books, had a show on QNN TV, and has exhibited his, his quilts at esteemed venues such as AQS Quilt Week, QuiltCon, and the International Quilt Study Center. Thomas Knauer, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. A few months ago, I was uh, working on an article about Quilts, Inc. and their decision to name a seating area at International Quilt Festival the Husband's Lounge. So I was chatting with a friend of mine, Kate McKean, who's an agent, a book agent, and she said to me, you should call Thomas because he has something to say about this. (laughs) So I did, and you did. And uh, while we were talking, it became clear to me that you have a lot of perspectives on the quilting industry as a whole that I feel like are pretty unusual and are rarely talked about. And so I asked if you'd be on the podcast to explore those ideas further, and you agreed. So here we are. Uh, I, I like to talk. So anytime <laughs> anyone will give me a chance and a venue, I will do it. Okay, perfect. So um, so let's just start briefly by um, by sort of just exploring your history in the industry as a quilter. So if you can kind of trace how we got here, how we got to the point where, you know, you have quilts exhibited at these fantastic places and have written books and had a show and are doing all of this sort of high-level things in the industry. Um, so take us back to sort of the beginning of quilting for you. Well, it was really a, it's, it's, the whole story is a sort of one thing sort of tumbles into another. Um, I started sewing about six years ago now, um, as I was finally recovering from the muscular dystrophy, or at least getting it under control. And on a whim, I decided to make Matilda, my daughter, a, just a plain dress, no logos, no cartoon tie-in. And it was really, it wasn't the sewing that sucked me in, it was her reaction that she, she just looked at me as a two-year-old and, and said, you made that for me? And really, that was that first big lesson 
of sewing and quilting and whatnot, and all of the crafts are, are really about connection, not necessarily the product, what gets made. So after that, I made a whole lot more dresses for her, and her eyes lit up every single time, and a friend of a friend was a friend of someone in the industry who said, you should try designing fabric. And I said, you know what? I've been a design professor for six years before getting ill. Sure, I should give this a go. And in a month, I designed three complete collections and sent them off to Andover. And whiz bang, I'm now a quilting fabric designer, which was something I never had thought would ever happen. I was an experimental net art artist. Um, now I'm making quilting fabric, but I decided I should probably make a quilt just to see, you know, how cutting fabric small affects a design rather than, okay, I'm making a dress. Here it is in a big chunk. And I made that, I made a, I designed and made my first quilt and really I just finished the top and I showed it to Matilda. It was right around Christmas. She's now still just about two and a half. Um, and she's once again lights up and says, you made that for me. But here's the moment where I became a full-time quilter is she ran at me and barreled into me and I folded around her and the quilt was between us and she just stood there and let me hug her. And that may not seem phenomenal, but my daughter is on the autism spectrum and when she was a baby, she wouldn't let us hug her. She would sit on our lap for minutes and hours if we were reading a story, but if you tried to hug her face to face, she would panic. Because to her, that red is constraint, we now understand. But with that quilt top between us, she just stood there and let me hug her for 30 seconds. And that quilt top facilitated the first real hug between me and my daughter. And I was hooked. I, I knew the academic in me said, she's intuiting something about this thing that makes her feel safe. But she doesn't know the metaphors and the history and the connections and associations. She just simply intuited it. And I then spent the next year, made about 40 quilts in the next year, just sewing every available minute to learn how to do it. Practice technique and try out designs. I never followed anybody else's patterns. I just designed quilts and figured out how to make them. And at the same time was researching quilt history. What are these things? Why have they been made? And what have they meant? So that was sort of an apprenticeship that you combine with my, the 20 years before that, I'd been a working artist. I figure I had 50,000 hours of being an artist under my belt before I started quilting. So much of that translated both the sculpture my background as a sculptor and my background as a designer just led me to this is a perfect medium, for me at least, um, to talk about ideas through something people sleep under in the intimacy of their homes.
And did the idea that it was craft, you know, in other words, that you can sleep under it, that it's, you know, for me, there's this utilitarian piece that makes something craft. Um, so it's both art and craft, but like, did that bother you at all? Or is that something that appealed to you? That, that was, that was the point. I've made maybe one, one true wall quilt in my entire time. They are all practical bed quilts. Um, unless you do something truly evil to them, they should last a hundred years. Um, because in some ways they, for me, there's still art reasons. The fact that it's a quilt disarms people. They, they have associations, they're comfortable. And then when I make quilts about gun violence, that craft art disconnection that might feel like a disconnect, but to me is really a natural connection when we look at quilt history, um, really lets the message speak in a different way. And then there's the whole, not only do you look at it, you, you can live with it. And to me, the quilts I make are about writing the stories, writing the events, that should never be forgotten. And quilts with their multi-generational tradition of handing them down, it's a, an amazing medium for talking about things that we should never, ever, ever forget. Yeah, yeah that's really powerful. Um, okay, so, so I like this idea of quilting being something that is a medium of sort of um, ideas being carried on, events being carried on. And for me, uh, talking about the quilting industry is also a way to talk about bigger issues in society, to talk about feminism and social justice. And, you know, so it's interesting, like I write about the industry, but I write about the industry in a way I think that helps to bring to light some of these larger ideas, some of them social, some political. Um, and so I want to sort of delve into some of that with you now, if that's okay. And, um, the first thing I want to flesh out is your thoughts about the relationship between perfection and quilting. And I know uh, for me, I'm often discouraged from sharing like quilt piecing that I've done online um, because I fear like the quilt police are going to see every imperfection. And even if they don't point them out publicly, they're like silently judging me and my that my points aren't perfect or that my quarter inch seam is imperfect. And, um, and it's, it's really, you know, there's just a real culture, I feel like of perfectionism in quilting that's sort of inherent in the industry. And I wonder how you see that quest for perfection as it relates to quilting. It's an interesting phenomenon. Um, and I think there are, before I get into the industry, I'd like to, if I could take just a minute to sort of look at how we got to that notion. Sure. Because um, quilts, for the most part, were never perfect. Those perfect quilts were the, were the heirloom ones. You would make for a truly special occasion. A wedding would be the most common. And then that in, infinite level of craftsmanship would be put into that. Or your your, your sampler to demonstrate that you've perfected your skills. There are a couple moments where perfect quilts are required. Perhaps in England, 
there was a greater emphasis on perfect quilts because they were not a mobile society. You had your stone home. We could take a long time to make a quilt. Here in America in the 19th century, it was, we need a lot of quilts fast or we're going to freeze to death in Minnesota. So the vast majority of quilts in America that were made weren't perfect, but the ones that survived were the heirlooms. The ones that ended up in our quilt museums are the heirlooms. So that, be, that really flavored during the Great American Quilt Revival back in the mid-70s, the notion of what quilts are. And the industry really picked up then on the quilts that were being shown. So there's, there's a, it makes sense that we would have this idea of perfectibility, but with that perfectibility, that word you used, fear, the thing I find most fascinating is when people hear I'm a quilter, they say, oh, I could never do that. They're terrified of, of even starting or trying to make a quilt because they believe it has to be perfect. They know they aren't perfect. Therefore, quilts are impossible. And so it's even had a massive effect that way on people who would love to make quilts but are, are just run off from the practice by, well, the, the implications of the industry. If perfection is the goal, then patterns are essential. They will tell us how to do it perfectly. If perfection is the goal, a million tools are needed to make sure our points are perfect. If perfection is the goal, we need the best sewing machine, the best fabric, the best thread, the best of everything, or we will not achieve perfection. And that's the really weird thing, if I, I'm, I hope I'm not babbling, but that's the really weird thing is it's, we run into the Martha Stewart problem. With Martha Stewart, her, you know, on her show says, hey, make the perfect centerpiece for your Thanksgiving. And that centerpiece will somehow, it's implied, make your Thanksgiving better. It'll make it the dream Thanksgiving. But there's a whole industry of craft fail and Martha, uh, Martha fail online because we can never reproduce what Martha Stewart makes because she has a team that makes probably 60 of them and they pick the best one for the show. But when we come up short, where does the blame go? No one blames Martha. They blame themselves. And that's that inflection point of the idea of perfectibility, is that it not only makes it seem too hard, it ends up producing shame. You're afraid to show it to them, not just because people might be snarky, but I bet you there's some internalized shame that your points aren't perfect. Oh, sure. That's definitely true. That's... That's the flip side of that notion is that it turns out it is an incredibly psychologically damaging idea to base an industry on. And the industry needs to be based on that. And it's not, I'm not, I'm not calling the industry an evil empire, but it needs to be because if that isn't the goal, 
then there's no reason to produce more tools. There's no reason to produce a thousand different soaks or sprays that will make your fabric more stable so you can be perfect. There's no reason for a $10,000 sewing machine that will all but guarantee perfect points. Mm-hmm. With that notion, the industry would have gone in a very different direction. And so I, I'm not saying the industry is driving perfectibility, although I'm sure there are some marketing departments that fully embrace the implications. I think it is that base implication that arose in the quilting revival that really created an industry that in the end is predicated on shame. And do you feel like, you know, I, I, whenever I look at modern quilters who've sort of risen to the top, who've become well-known, especially in sort of improv, improv quilting, um, they very often will point to um, an experience in which they got to see the quilts of G's Bend. You know, they were on exhibit, they were able to see them and had this revelation moment that things didn't have to be perfect. They didn't have to be the standard block patterns. And it was like this freedom to break away from what they thought quilting had to be and to do something that they wanted quilting to be. And so do you feel like those, that exhibit or those quilts, you know, is sort of because it was in stark contrast to what you're saying, in stark contrast to the, the quilts that were part of the sort of bicentennial revival, um, they were, these are, these G's Ben quilts couldn't be more different. Um, and so maybe that helps people to, to break away from that, that perfection idea. It does, but then <laughs> I have an odd relationship to G's Bend in the industry in that now that G, G's Bend quilts have been reified, they are the holy of holies. They too have taken on this but I could never do it as well. And it's not the, G, the quilt's fault, it's not G's Bend, it's when you produce 120 books on them and hold them up as the exe- exemplars, there is that effect. I'm more interested in the best quilt in this house, by far, 10 times better than anything I've ever made, is a quilt Catherine, my wife's, um, Catherine, my wife, her grandmother made for me um, the year after Catherine and I got married. And she had long stopped really making quilts. She was almost blind. Her hands were arthritic. But I got a job teaching at Drake University in Iowa. And she's in the, she's from the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. And to her, that was, oh, no, he's going to be cold. And he's part of the family now. So I need to make him a quilt. And it is wool and polyester, red and blue, 10-inch squares. Seams aren't perfect. It's just yarn knotted, which to me is the most beautiful gesture I've ever seen in quilting. Because for a woman with arthritic hands to yarn knot through woolen polyester had to have been painful. But it was important to her to do it. And it weighs two tons, 
And even in Des Moines, um, I had to crack a window in the depths of winter to be able to sleep under it because it was so warm. But that gesture of keeping me warm, keeping me safe, and essentially coming out of quilt retirement, that is the most beautiful quilt I have ever seen. And I wish quilts like that were held up as exemplars, not just the miraculous, the remarkable tradition of G's Bend, but just ordinary quilts. I want to take a minute now to talk about our episode sponsor, Craftcation. Craftcation is a totally fantastic creative business and makers conference that takes place every year in Ventura, California. And I went a few years ago, and I have to tell you, it was the most fun I've had in a long time. So it's a combination of amazing business classes. Um, I actually taught one about email newsletters, which is one of my favorite topics, but I also went to a whole lot of them and learned some really valuable content. And it's also, in addition to that, time for you to sit down and rediscover your inner artist. So there's all kinds of really cool classes. It's a great combination of business and um, discovery and creativity and also networking. You'll meet people at Craftcation that you will then be in contact with for years to come and collaborate with and grow your business together. That's definitely what happened to me. So this year's Craftcation is taking place April 27th to 30th um, in Ventura, California. That's uh, 2017, if you're listening to this a little bit later on. And it is four days, and they are totally life-changing. There will be 80-plus hands-on DIY craft workshops. That is so many. And business classes, as well as special events. There's going to be a happy hour, a keynote dinner. There's morning yoga. There's a dance party. It's totally fun. The weather in Ventura, if you're like me and you're from Boston, is marvelous. Um, and, it, you know, you get to be out in California and enjoy that experience as well, which for me was great. I went on a morning run every morning before the conference started um, on the boardwalk, and it was just amazing. So if you are a maker, a blogger, or a creative business owner, Craftcation Conference is the perfect place for you. You're going to get all the tools and resources you need to start the business of your dreams, to take your existing business to the next level, to make lifelong friends and build your community and discover or rediscover your inner artist and crafter. So to register, I want you to go to dearhandmadelife.com and you're going to use a special coupon code just for Walshy Naps listeners, which is so awesome. So put Walshy Naps um, in when you are registering and you're going to save $20 off of the registration. So that's going to be awesome as well. And maybe you'll meet some other Walshy Naps listeners while you're at the conference. Um, please let me know if you do. And um, Craftcation, you should know, it sells out every single year. So you do want to hop on and register now so you don't miss this chance and have a fantastic time at the Craftcation Business and Makers Conference, April 27th to 30th in Ventura, California. That's dearhandmadelife.com and use that coupon code WALSHYNAPS to save $20 on your registration. Thank you so much, Craftcation. And now back to my conversation with Thomas. Yeah, you said to me when we were talking um, for that article, something, I think you said something about, you know, the best thing you could do is to take all the fabrics that you have right now, 
that are in your stash and just cut them into squares and make a quilt out of what you have because that would be a reflection of sort of your taste and your history and just go for it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, at, at the visual aesthetic level, you're going to like it because you bought all those fabrics. You probably like them. Boom. You get enough fab. Every postage stamp quilts have taught us you put enough different fabrics together, it will look beautiful, even if they don't seem to make sense. But when you look at it, you see those are the fabrics I bought to make this quilt for that person. That's fabric I bought to make a dress for my daughter, or my granddaughter, or a jacket for my son. Every piece of fabric in your stash has connection to you and your life. And that's really the beauty of doing that is you've just written your quilting by your sewing memoir in a quilt. And then to have that with you or to give that to someone else, to give that, this is my life in quilts. It's, it's beautiful. And, and I think that's, that's the danger of perfectibility again, being the sort of exemplar of what beautiful means, then all of these other gestures, these things, my, my grandmother-in-law's quilt, and, and its beauty would be lost. Its beauty is irrelevant in the cult of perfectibility. That, that memoir quilt is, is unimportant in the cult of perfectibility. Of course, unless you cut them as one-inch squares and every seam is perfect, then now it's perfect, so it's okay. Right, or you, like, organize them in some sort of color gradient that's super yes. brilliant, right? <laughs> so, yeah. right, and, and you know, I think that this brings us, so you had said um, that the quilting industry has nothing to do with quilts. Yeah. And I thought that was a pretty radical statement. Uh, the quilting industry has nothing to do with quilts. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty simple statement. And I do believe all, the majority of companies in the industry do care about quilts, but their primary goal is to succeed as a business. They are going to produce what will sell according to their marketing research. They are then tied to and tend to sort of aim at a norm. And where do they get that idea of the norm, the largest possible audience? That is always found by what has sold in the past. So the industry is really looking backwards. It is in many ways necessarily regressive. It is not looking to promote the next ideas in quilts. It doesn't really care about stories. That's for you. We need to sell things. And that's just industry. That's not the quilting industry per, per se, but it is a multi-billion dollar industry that is predicated on selling more stuff. And the industry's primary focus is selling enough stuff to be profitable. And if it happens to help quilters find their inner voice, nifty, but that's not what they're aiming at. 
they are aiming at selling things. And I don't think that's, a, again, that's not necessarily a negative. That's what every industry is. But I think we need to be aware of that, of what, what is behind a product. Why is it being made? What does it mean that it exists? It is not necessarily there for you. No matter how much industry might tell you, this will make your quilts more whatever. It is an industry that needs to serve itself. Right, right. I think there's something here about it being kind of like art, but for a mass market. It's sort of so like these are the art supplies that we buy um, right. to be able to make this sort of more mass market art. Like we buy a pattern, we yeah. buy a, ro a pre-cut roll, we buy a rotary cutter, we buy, you know, a walking foot. We buy all of these supplies um, in order to do sort of this creative artistic expression, but maybe maybe this strikes you so much because you come from a fine art background and sort of entered accidentally into, um, into the quilting, into quilting as a, as a craft or as an art. And cool. so it's like, here are all these products being marketed to, to people who make these things. And it seems sort of striking. Yeah. And well, I mean, that's the same thing in the same thing exists in the art world. Look at, you know, competition between oil paint companies. And they'll, they do the exact same thing. It is, to me, it becomes a question of not, of each quilter asking why you, why do I want to make quilts? And with each quilt, why am I making this and for whom? And let that be the lead rather than, <gasps> there's this new, 37.25 degree angle ruler that I just have to have because it's nifty and new. And now my next quilt is going to be guided by the thing instead of a connection. My, my, again, I keep coming back to my grandmother-in-law. I don't think she even used a rotary cutter. She had scissors, some thread, some yarn and just made me a quilt. That so was so is, that, is that quilt more pure somehow then? I mean, so like, let's say I go and I buy a kit, you know, like a pre-cut um, jelly roll and a pattern that goes with it. The jelly roll fabric is the exact fabric, you know, that's used I, in the cover picture on the pattern. So the one I'm going to make is going to be exactly like that one. But I'm making it for my friend who just had a baby. Is that quilt yes. less no. important or pure? I, I hate the word pure. Okay. Pure is dangerous. Pure is why modernism itself as an art movement was highly suspect. <laughs> Pure is the vocabulary of fascism. Um, it, is, it is more that that quilt asked a set of questions. I need to keep him warm. This is very warm material I have. My hands don't work so well, so I have to use big pieces. Boom. Yours is equally that the example you gave of that fabric speaks to me about my friend and jelly roll quilts are, are just such a lovely tradition for, for baby quilts. And 
this will look wonderful because they're great for baby quilts because they end up giving non non-perfectly repeated patterns when you do the whole whatever that is the runner quilt is that what it's called yeah the jelly roll race or whatever yeah it's a non-perfectly repeating pattern with lots of color and patterns in it that's perfect for a baby and if the fabric spoke to you about your friend you know in some way reminded you of your friend there's now thought is a thoughtful quilt and to me I have nothing against patterns. I have nothing against tools or $10,000 machines. But to me, quilts, or at least the quilting tradition, was the quilt follows the need and the gift. Right. In other words, not letting the consumerism or the quest for perfectionism be the guide, but instead saying, I want to make this out of my own desire or my own need. Um, whether it's for myself or to give to somebody else, but it's a story and sort of have that be the thing that guides you. That's the essence of the quilt tradition. I mean, log cabins are, log cabin quilts are deep, at least back when they were being originally made, because they're a reflection of survival. A log cabin, you, you're, my, you're moving west, you're leaving in spring, you get there late summer, you don't have much time to produce shelter. Well, log cabins were quick and easy to make. Boom, you have shelter, and now you're going to survive the winter. And the quilt is inspired by that. And it speaks to more than just, hey, that's a nifty way to cut and sew fabric together. That's there too. But the inspiration spoke of survival. Sawtooth blocks, you know, you're, again, westward migration, you need a couple things to, for basic survival. An axe, a saw, some buckets. You need a few things to make sure you don't die. <laughs> and those things were translated into quilt blocks. And so, yes, they were aesthetic play, but they were also thought. They were personal. And it doesn't have to be deep thought. I go esoteric because that's my background in training. Um, I've been an academic, you know, the only thing, I've only ever wanted to be two things in my life. When I was three, I wanted to be a fire truck. And then when I was 10, I decided I wanted to be a professor. So I go my path because that's my training and background. But I don't know how I'm ever going to make a better quilt than a quilt I made for Matilda that's just interconnected letter H's. But, but that came from one day we were walking along holding hands and it's the summer and she just stops and points at our shadow and says, Papa, we are an H. So I have an H block. And now they all come together with no extra spaces. And it's there. It wasn't a big, deep idea. It was just something my daughter said to me resonated. Quilts are easy. Quilts are incredibly easy. They have one requirement, that they can cover someone. That's it. Then technically to be called a quilt, it's three layers with stitching between. But if you don't put the batting in and use flannel or minky, that's still a quilt. Pshaw. <laughs> um, that it, it, but I think that perfection 
perfectibility notion has made quilts into something that have to be hard to be quality. And to me, quilts are easy. They don't have to fit. They just have to be able to cover somebody. Right, right. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit about about the change, like the changing way the industry is functioning. So like everything else, um, you know, we are accessing information in new ways. We are um, purchasing products in new ways. We're finding community in new ways. A lot of all of those new ways have to do with being online. And um, and it's forcing, you know, industries to change, all different industries to change. And ours is no different. So where do you see the future headed? Um, and who is the audience for quilting products to come? I see the industry becoming increasingly less relevant. I think communities are forming and rising really quickly, especially since we can have community at a distance now with uh, online. I think communities are going to start really driving the conversation more and more, just as the Modern Quilt Guild totally added change to conversation, at least, well, no, even in the industry, that communities are going to more and more have the power to shift the industry. Then the industry will capture that and fold it back into its regular old practices. But communities are going to keep forming and keep doing new things that the industry is going to have to respond to. And I think that's the big shift I see in terms of how the industry is going to function. It in order to survive as it's what it still considers its main audience, as more and more of that audience retires or passes on, it, it, the industry is going to have to become more responsive. And really quickly, it's going to be, need to be able to shift quickly. A new thing pops up, it's going to need product there quickly, or that audience that's making, that community that's making this, taking this new approach is just going to find alternate places to find the material they need. So the companies that are going to survive are the companies who have, are, are already playing the game, who are, right, who are already where these communities that you're talking about are growing, whether that's on Instagram or on blogs. I mean, I think maybe Instagram is where those communities are forming and growing and also in person at guild meetings and at conferences and conventions like QuillCon and um, other meetup kind of, you know, like Sotopia where people are coming together to sew together. So the companies that are already already have an ear to the ground and are already sort of in there listening and um, forging collaborations and relationships, are those the ones that are going to be able to respond quickly and innovate and are open to that new, uh, you know, new breath of air? It's the ones that are going to, that are not only listening, but go ahead and take the risks. Because new communities are not a guaranteed sustainable income source, which is why the quilt industry tends to revert back to the sort of much more traditional 
and to perfectibility because those are reliable. The companies that are going to survive as that reliable income source, again, ages out, it, they are going to have, the companies that will survive are the ones that are going to be willing to take a risk, take the economic risk, and hope a, and hopefully do it well enough that enough of those risks pay off and pay off in a way that offset some of the risks that didn't pay off. So can you, can you point to a company who's doing that now? Like who stands out to you as somebody, as a company that's sort of saying, sure, we're going to play. Like we're in, we're going to play, you know, sort of out with the old, let's do it. I'll, I'll give you one in fabric and one in the uh, elsewhere. Sure. I'm really digging on Hoffman right now with launching the me and you and what they did with Latifah, Safir. Yeah, the new boutiques. Yeah. I mean, I think just saying, hey, this is what we do, but let's try it in a way that's never really been done before. Yeah. No, I give them a lot of credit as well. And they also signed Melissa Averinos. Yes. And they, let, and they did a printed collection with uh, Latifah, wasn't it? I think so. Uh, graphics? Yes, I think so. Um, so they are going, hey, there's this audience that isn't coming to our boutiques. Let's take some risks. And they may or may not work. And let's form a sub-brand and see if that works. Um, and you've got to give, on the fabric side, huge props to cotton and steel. Yeah, right. That's the first one that came to mind when you said that was like, here's a completely different way yeah. of doing this. You know, we, this is a completely non-traditional way of doing this. It's, it's a group together. Everything coordinates. Uh, it's just a, it's a totally new and different way of, of approaching this design process and launch process. And um, it's super tech savvy. And it's, um, they really sort of give you insight in, into how things got made. Um, they're doing using video really well, and it's it's definitely and and also sort of credit to to RJR for saying. Yep. I mean, RJR is a super traditional I, company, and to say like you know we're gonna embrace you know this woman with pink hair and let this happen. Yeah, no, and I think they they really modeled themselves after you know especially the first half of the twentieth century artists collectives. Um that they said, we, we can be our own management and we can work together and together we can figure out all the things that we need to figure out. And it was a brilliant maneuver. And a risk. And a risk, a risk for everybody involved. And it paid off big. And largely for them, it paid off big because they have massive talent. Yes. Not, right. And I hate that word talent. No, but it's vision. Uh, it's vision. Massive skill. It's skill, it's skill, it's talent, and it's, but it's also foresight. Like, it's also being able to lead through vision. And, and a huge part of that was also enough frustration with the system as it was of getting their 15 cents a yard. Just, they were like, no, we are all professional, serious designers. We can be working in any industry, yet... So we need to change that economic model for ourselves. And I don't actually know, though, how 
much of a different in economic model it is like that i don't i don't know i don't have insight into the details there i don't know i don't know the details yeah, i don't either but there are there are a wholly owned subsidiary of rgr yeah. so i'm not totally sure it's economically different i don't know that there are there are a couple layers of difference and I, my bet is is it's it's better <laughs> potentially but it's, it but, it's but, I, but we don't know for sure yeah we don't know for sure but i i've done some yeah i and then I want to give some props to you. Know, this might be unexpected. Brewer, distributors. You know, they're doing things like launching their own sewing machines that are inexpensive, but better than the store, you know, what Singer became. <laughs> Which I just, you know, that's a risk. Hey, we're a distributor, but let's start making some of our own stuff. And let's start with Sony machines that are affordable to someone just thinking about giving a try. And because I give them props because that counters that notion of perfectibility is the goal. Thus, I must have a super expensive machine, which there's nothing wrong with super expensive machines. But it says, let's produce true high quality entry level machines. Isn't is Brewer owned by Bernina though? I think it might be. Is it? But I think so. That's a Brewer subdivision, right? Sublabel, and it's like those are risks. Um, that's going to be on Brewer's books. It doesn't have the name recognition. The the whatever the 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 machines there, they are selling doesn't have the name recognition of Bernina. Sure. Right. 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 So and the smart move it's like that's a risk that they think is going to pay off and i think changing the formula of what an entry-level machine means is i think is an insightful move but it's a risky move because are enough people going to quilters going to bypass the known commodities to go there. And yeah. there's a I, I give, you know, I give like um, Hawthorne Threads, um, which is an online quilt shop, and I give them a lot of credit, um, Lindsay and her husband who own Hawthorne Threads, because they invested heavily in digital printing and have created all of these fabric lines that are their, their own, that are exclusive to their shop, that you can only get there. And again, that's a risk. I mean, those, those machines are not small and they're not inexpensive yep. and there's definitely a margin of error and, um, and all of that. But she, you know, she, they, they took that on and, and create, and I don't know of any other, at least not very many, sure. uh, online fabric shops or yep. even brick and mortar fabric shops that have said, okay, we're going to design and, and digitally print our own fabric lines that you're only going to be able to get here. There are a couple more, I think. Maybe a few. I think Old City Quilts outside Philly is starting to do that. Um, but that's beside, yeah, there are... Mm -hmm. yeah. But these risks are important. And I actually think that that kind of brings me to my next question, which is about quilt shops. And I think... You know, this year we've seen, or in 2016, we, we saw a lot of um, a lot of shops close, and some shops opened, of course. But uh, you know, the City Quilter in New York City closed, and so Modern in LA is closing, and, and we've seen quite a few um, pretty prominent shops close. And I think that that model of going to your brick and mortar quilt shop, where they have what they have. And they have supposed that expertise, some of them do, some of them not as much, um, and are going to help you there. And sort of having that relationship with your local quilt shop, I think, is really in flux. And I wondered if you wanted to speak to sort of how that model might innovate or change or look five years out from now. 
thank you very much because I have a theory. Okay, <laughs> share your theory. Um, I don't think, first of all, I don't think shops are running into trouble or having problems with online because they're being underpriced. In general, the price variation is nibbling at the margins. Okay, online it might be a dollar less, but when you're buying a fat quarter, but then you have to wait, you know, days. I think the big problem is, is that with online, those quilters that are online can see everything. Every single, they couldn't quite, they could possibly go see every single piece of fabric, every single skew made in a given year. And then when you go to your shop, no matter how big it is, what's available seems small. I've been to City Quilter a bunch of times. I liked the shop. They had a lot of bolts and it seemed tiny to me because I am so tapped in online. And so much of the cost of a shop is just shelf space that gets held by a bolt for three months, six months, a year. The turnover rate is not fast enough to keep up with what's coming out. And I think that model of bolts on walls is what's gonna have to change. And I think there's a really easy solution and it, one, it would require manufacturers to get into order fulfillment to the consumers. But I think it would sell more fabric. And what shops are is you, you've been to, you go to quilt market. I've been once. So wait, can I just step back for one second? So you're saying, you're saying manufacturers selling direct to consumer. Through the shops. Okay. The shops take the orders and what they have is basically, let's, Let's just call it layer cakes, hanging in groups, a layer cake for every collection. Instead of having 2,500 bolts. Oh, I see. So sort of similar to when you go pick out wallpaper, right? Yeah. Like we've all picked out wallpaper or like picked out new carpeting or something like that. And so you go to the store, they don't have every carpet and they don't have every wallpaper, but they give you a book. And in the book are like all of these little tiny pieces. And you go through and you say like this one and this one and this one. And then you take them home and you, you know, decide and whatever. So you're saying a shop could have something like that where you get a sampling of everything. Like, like they show at Quilt Market, the yeah, books. They have, or they have hang groups that hang on a hanger and there's the whole collection staggered. And you could have 100,000 fabrics in that shop that I can see the color. I can feel the fabric. All the reasons I go to a shop and then I place my order and it gets delivered. To me, now, to me at home. Directly to me at home. But instead of... So the shop becomes like a show place. A show, yeah, a showroom. A showroom, that's the word I'm looking at. But yes, a showroom. All the other good things about the shop, the notions, the threads. The expertise. The expertise. But, and you're seeing the fabric, but now you're no longer seeing, all right, 1,500 bolts, but I was hoping to find X, Y, Z but I'd really like to see it in person and feel it, not just online. This way you get to see the fabric, touch it, put them next to each other, design, figure out what goes with what. And in real time, real life with real material, and then your order comes, which if you're ordering online, you're still waiting for it to be delivered to your home. 
but now you have all the good things about the shops plus a much bigger array of fabric. That's fascinating. Have you... So that's the first I've heard of that. I mean, I've heard lots of different ideas about saving the brick and mortar shops, but that's, this was a new one. So have you talked to shop owners? Like, have you ever said, you know, to your local shop owner or a friend who's a shop owner and said, I have an idea. What about this? And, and heard their reaction? I, I haven't. And at the moment, I mean, this is going to take, this would be not just a shop trying it. This would have to be a complete renovation of the entire model. Because what happens to refs if you're just sending out hang groups and not selling bolts? That structure has to be radically altered. Um, how does order fulfillment happen? This is a massive overhaul, but shy of this, something of that scale, I don't see how shops survive because they all seem so tiny compared mm -hmm. to the totality of what we can see online. And I think that's, that's the big thing they're running up against. Yeah, that's kind of fascinating. Honestly, that's very innovative. I've never heard anybody uh, suggest that before. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's a possibility. I, you know, I'd like to talk to you. I, I know quite a few shop owners. I'd, I'd like to talk to them about that and hear what yep. they think. And, you know, I think there's probably a, going to be an immediate no, right? Like it's immediately like that does not work because that's completely different from what we're doing now. And what we're doing now is sort of working. So, um, so that would, I think it'd be an immediate no, but then maybe sort of a longer, more thoughtful possibly. Um, and then the other piece is order fulfillment, as you're saying, would require that the fabric companies themselves do fulfillment um, of retail orders or but, in some uh, way outsource that. And they're not set up to do that now. Um, right. That's least... why it's not a shop decision. But if they did that, I bet their sales numbers, I think there would be profit in it. Mm. I think there'd be money in it. Um, because you'd have people coming to the shops again, and you'd have people buying more fabric than they are right now, and you'd have more quilters. You know, another big barrier to new quilters entering the scene is they go to their local shop, and it's a this-style shop, and that's not what they're interested in, and they just kind of go, okay, I can't find fabric I like, so I'm just not going to do this. If every shop can carry every style, that opens up the doors. It, it, it changes so many fundamental dynamics that are hurting the fabric industry in one move. Yeah, yes. but then what, what is there that keeps the uniqueness, right? So I have a quilt shop here in, um, in the Boston area, which is called Gather Here, and it's this very modern, um, you know, super cool quilt shop. And they were really different, for example, than the, the other local quilt shop, quilt shop to me, which is now closed, which was the Button Box in Wellesley, which was much more old school and traditional and sort of of a different generation. And, um, and they've now retired. But, you know, those two shops couldn't have been more different, although, I guess, in a, in a broader sense, they would have been categorized as the same, right? They're both quilt shops, but they're completely different. So if everyone, though, had all of these books that had all of the fabrics in them, they're all the same. But that's assuming that the fabric is what makes a shop. Well, that's a good question. What makes a shop? 
I mean, that's where then, okay, this shop, yes, everything's available. We maybe have some extra emphasis on reproduction. We make sure we have all of that. And then we also sell uh, felt. We just buy some and have some. We sell wool applique kits and think supplies. We sell other things. What classes do we offer? Classes can be a big way of how you define the shop. Uh, now, a modern shop might then include, hey, wait, we have more space, we have more time, and our budget is not just eaten up by fabric that's on the shelves. Let's not just have some quilting classes, let's have some drawing classes that might spur ideas for quilts. That opens up, that takes so much of the anxiety and of the shop and shifts the focus away from the fabric we have defines what we are to what we want to do defines the shop. Yeah, and I guess even if people don't adopt uh, Thomas's radical model here, um, even if that never happens, I, I do still think that that final thing you just said is um, is actually probably the crux of this, which is what what do we want to do? You know, it's, so it's in other words, it's not about the fabric we have; it's who we are and what we're doing here. And I think that may be a question that um, that you know that we need to ask ourselves, like about this shop. Like, what are we doing here? And really, that's the exact parallel question to when we were talking about quilts. Why am I making this quilt, and what do I want to say to this person I'm making it for? It's the same question, and I think that question is at the core of quilting, the quilting business. If that's the, if that's the central set of questions, I see the industry succeeding. But if the central question is, is what product will sell, I'm seeing more and more. Look at our gener my generation and younger of quilters that came into it not as a child, they're coming to it because they want to make something meaningful instead of just buying something at a big box. That is the impetus. And so the questions to really capture and keep that audience, the questions we're asking need to follow that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's a really good note to end this part of the discussion on because I think it's a positive one. Like there is hope and there is a way to go forward sort of guided by purpose um, versus guided by other things that maybe creep in and are guiding us down the wrong path. I, so I am optimistic. If, if some things happen, I'm optimistic about the future of quilting, which I, I think is separate from whether I'm optimistic about the future of the quilting industry. I am deeply optimistic about the future of quilting. And that's a good thing. So let's talk for just a few minutes about some things that you wanted to recommend, Thomas, because I think you've got a couple of really good ones on here. Um, and I actually thought one of them was really funny. So can I, can I start with that one? It, that one was clutter. Like, I feel like that is something nobody recommends. So now you have to recommend clutter. Well, clutter is, it's different. There's this, the declutter movement I find really problematic because it sort of makes stuff purely use value. Do I need this? Do I not need it? If I don't need it, it goes. Well, you have to bow to it first and, but, think, and think it for its purpose. <laughs> and then it goes if you're Maria Kondo, but yes. Now my studio, I have punk posters, art 
from colleagues and old professors. I have drawings and paintings from my children. I have uh, political posters. I have random ephemera. I have scores and scores of quilts stacked books. I have vinyl. My, my studio looks cluttered, but it, but it feels comfortable to me. And not everything has deep meaning. It's, it's a matter of, no, you don't have to have that clean, pristine space. Clutter is not evil. Mess is not necessarily evil. Right now, I, thanks to medical illness and psych issues, I need talisman. I need this clutter. I need these things that remind me of who I am. And that, at the, in the best way, that's what stuff is. It is stuff that reminds us of our history. And I really need it right now. So I think clutter... If you're struggling, pull out the clutter. Out everything, <laughs> that, everything that means anything to you, even if in just a random way. I have the ticket stub from seeing my daughter dance in the Nutcracker, my eight-year-old. That I can't take that down right now. I need that over on the magnet board. Clutter, clutter is meaningful. Right. And I think that's an interesting perspective and some, one that will be reassuring to many people. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. You wanted to recommend um, listening to vinyl records. That's again, that's as much as anything, a talisman. I don't, you know, maybe the audio is a little warmer. I don't know. But there's right now for me, there's something about the process. And I had my old from high school vinyl and I just pulled it back out and got a relatively cheap, you can get turntables with their own speaker, like 50 bucks now. It's not the greatest turntable in the world, but who cares? It plays. And just putting the record on and putting the needle on feels as much as I am, you know, you've met me, I computerized long arm, but there's just a physical connection there that feels really nice to me and watching it spin always makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. And I, it brings me back to listening to records when I was a kid, my brother and I, um, we used to dance, you know, we'd like dance to Michael Jackson songs yep. and stuff. And like, I just remember like jumping up in the air and I would land and the record would skip. <laughs> Tilda and I had a print dance party to Prince last night. There you go. Um, and it's just, I guess there as much as anything, it's filling your space. I'm a big, um, I would recommend everybody read A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. But in my studio, I really, really need, because I am, I'm hurting. Um, I really need things that, that just have some kind of connection to me and Vinyl reminds me of when I was in high school and when I was healthy. Um, so that's a big part of why the vinyl's out. And anybody out there, you know, something you're, everybody struggles. We all have our traumas. Find the things that connect you to what you want to be again and keep them around you. That's, that's the point of a talisman. 
Yeah, and it's the point of a quilt too. So I think that's an awesome note to end on. And Thomas, thank you so much for just taking the time to talk with me and to be on the Walshy Naps podcast and to share your sort of different perspective on quilting and on the quilting industry. Well, thank you for letting me, as I said, uh, give me a microphone and I will talk. <laughs> it's great talking with you. Um, and you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you so much to today's episode sponsor, Craftcation. I want to read you a quote from a Craftcation alumna who says, Craftcation was a truly life-changing experience. I left inspired in my business and creativity and made so many great contacts. It was well worth every dollar. Go to dearhandmadelife.com and use the coupon code while she naps to save $20 off of your registration today and enjoy this amazing business and makers conference on April 27th through 30th in Ventura, California. Thank you so much, Craftcation. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time.